many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stopped talking and just stared at the radio. Like, what is that? It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. Box. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. How good is Lachlan Wiley sounding these days on the radio? Thanks to him for taking care of mornings for you today. Three hours of great tunes and if you want to check out anything from the show, you can always check it out on the website, see the songs he's played and uh, I've seen a lot of texts in and been like, what is that song? It's magic. Well, you can all find it out right there on the FBI Radio website on the programs and playlist page. And today on Out of the Box, Alice Fraser is my guest. She's a comedian. Her comedy makes people cry, laugh and sometimes just cry. She's done shows about working in corporate law, about her mother's death, and now Alice is back in town for Sydney Comedy Festival for the next four nights. Her show, The Resistance, is at the Enmore Theatre, but I couldn't get into it at Melbourne Comedy Festival because it's sold out night after night. Congratulations on a great run, Alice. Oh, thank you. It was a dream. It was uh, really weirdly good <laughs> weirdly good so this implies that in the past you've had not so good experiences well it's just normally comedy is extremely hard work you have to fly people into your show you have to work really hard every day to try and get a, a, people into your show and I woke up every day during this Melbourne Comedy Festival run with almost sold out houses or sold out houses no need just to fly didn't, yeah didn't need to do the work which was very disconcerting except I'm about to go do Sydney, then New Zealand, then London, then Edinburgh. So there's plenty of failure in my near future. So I could actually just enjoy it rather than feeling the fear. It was really nice. Actually, I wonder what it's like when you're flyering. When you are flyering, do you have a quip that you say that is kind of like to open up people's mind to seeing your comedy? Because sometimes it's so sad. I'm terrible at flyering for myself. So I'll often take flyers from friends who I who shows I can really promote and sort of genuinely try and find out what the person is interested in and what they might like and then at the end of that you know you should see this person you should see that person I'd be like and this is my show uh (laughs) otherwise I just go that's my face and point at my face on the flyer (laughs) which works more or less that's great I had one in um Melbourne Comedy Festival this guy reached out gave me a flyer and said can you put that in the bin for me (laughs) (laughs) that's often what it is it's very heartbreaking yeah no really it really was tearjerker but we've got our first track which is certainly not a tearjerker now what a way to open a show we've got something from hail mary mallon now yes tell us a bit about this this is my uh, pump up song that i play before a show before i let the audience in of course because it's got a lot of swearing in it uh but it makes me it just makes me happy i think it's dumb i think it's funny makes me laugh and it's also a reminder of that money is not necessarily the be all and end all and it can be quite a stupid thing to money, 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 money,
20 motherfuckers in a levitating car 747 full of women and cigars Get money Money in a motherfucking pot A castle full of cars and a yard full of yachts A leopard with a mink and an arm full of clocks All hand wound every day by a spot Get money Money, 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 Money is a motherfucking joke. 40 bald eagles sewn into a coat. Zoo with the crib, mermaid in the moat. Buy another strip mall every eighth. No, get money. Money ain't a motherfucking prize. It's a sport I invented to win when I watch. And own all the rights and the lights and the locks. Even own all the ice and the sprite you just dropped. Get money. Money of your motherfucking life. Two-ton angel carved out of ice. Alligator sailboat, dollar sign ice. Fill a warehouse full of Van Goghs twice. Get money. Money or your motherfucking heart. I could give it to my dog. He makes money when he barks. So put it in my fridge or in one of my parks that I bought so my robots could learn how to lop. Get money. Money, 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 motherfucker. So, so this is how you prepare yourself for making thousands of dollars as a comedian. <laughs> Just a song Ten, about tens money. of dollars as a comedian. It's a, it's a, yeah. I think it's a reminder that money is sort of a ridiculous thing to pursue. Yeah, and I guess that's probably much more pertinent for you than like the average person because I mean, you did pursue money for a time. What was your, what was your gig before you were a comedian? I was a lawyer. Uh, so I, I, I don't think I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to make money. I genuinely believe what people tell you about the law, which is if you if you're wordy and good good with ideas, you'll love the law, and then maybe you don't. Particularly, I went into the kind of the big corporate law firm environment, which is its own sort of pathological thing, and. I would look at the paycheck and I would think, what would I buy with this money? And the answer was always, 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 I would buy that time back. <laughs> so I think of the no money I make as a comedian as a, a purchase I made with the money I'm not getting as a lawyer. Yeah, you're buying time. Yeah, I'm buying time with, uh, you know, I know what I'm worth per hour in six-minute increments and I, I'm happily paying that <laughs> for the life I have now. It's a beautiful way of thinking of it. But I want to kind of get a bit of an idea about what you practically would have to take care of when you were doing that job. What kind of what kind of tasks were you given? Like, like cases or? Oh, I mean, I was in I was in corporate real estate uh, law, so it's a lot of contract work. It's a lot of uh, conveyancing. It's very um, it's very attention to detail-y work. It's quite repetitive. At that low level, you don't have a lot of. Um, power or responsibility or autonomy or anything other than the sort of constant pressure of, of being about to screw up and have somebody come down on you like a ton of bricks. This just the, They motivate you through this fear of failure and this constant sense that you might be doing the wrong thing and no one necessarily tells you explicitly but the way you dress and the way you act are all sort of shifted subtly into very narrow channels. Like the way you dress, as in people would judge you on what you were wearing? No, no one tells you not to wear something, but, you know, I have curly hair, it's curly, that's what it is, and people would look at my hair while they were talking to me, just that, like, like looking just above your forehead as they're talking to you rather oh, than so at your face, and then occasionally, very occasionally, someone would say something like, do you think you should straighten that? that I think it didn't just look more, you know, just professional, just a bit... 
You know, just <laughs> subtle little nudges So like no that. camaraderie, no, not like, you know, when journalists are all finished a shift and they all go for a drink, it's like lawyers are all finished and they do what? What do you mean finished? As in like, oh, they're never finished. <laughs> no. oh, I mean, there God. is a camaraderie and people people are kind to one another, particularly down on the lower lower ranks, but there's just a... There's a very clear pyramid in the that there's not that many partners and there's quite a lot of people further down the ranks. So you mm. know that two thirds of your cohort are going to have to drop away one way or another, and whether it's happily or unhappily because they've been burned out or destroyed or just because they decide that they want to leave. It's a war of attrition that everyone willingly participates in. Absolutely, on the odds that you will become a partner. And when you looked at the partners, not a lot of them were particularly happy either. Oh. Well, they've won the holy grail, eternal sadness with lots of dollars. Well, you look at the person on the throne and you're like, oh, do I want to be there? Yeah. So, well, you talked to comedy. That turned out pretty well, seeing as I've uh, I've been reading a couple of reviews of your work uh, lately and Chortle's stoked on you. Everyone seems to be pretty stoked. But you have a very kind of hard-to-pin-down comedy. I mean, comedy is one word that covers so many genres. It's like saying, I listen to music. Yes. It's like I, I go see comedy. Um, but how would you describe what you do? Well, I, I try to do a bunch of different things in a show. So I'll have like something silly and I have things that are very thinky and I have things that are a little bit abstract and I have things that are uh, all all, of, all the way around to really tragic. I try to put them in in, in the service of the story that I'm trying to tell or the, the reaction I'm trying to get of, of the audience. I think the kind of the idea that I have for comedy, wanting to create an experience for the audience, wanting them to have something meaningful come out of the hour of comedy laughter but also something else uh, or laughter as a, as a means to an end um, is, a, I think, I don't know, there's a school of us in the Australian comedy scene, in the world comedy scene of, of uh, this kind of comedy. It doesn't have a name. There are people who are in it like Michael Workman, uh, you know, Daniel Kitson from the UK, uh, Laura Davis from Melbourne, uh, Corey White. So uh, kind of like heavy comedy I don't know. I call it the blue whale school of comedy in my head because we go deep. Um, but, uh, and uh, because we like eating krill through our teeth. Uh, I, I don't know. There isn't a name for it. I think we, we lack a vocabulary to talk about the, the different kinds of comedy because you, mm. you do have that thing where people walk in and they walk out of your show and they go, that is not what I expected. Yeah. Do you, and, so you pay a bit of a price for having that kind of well, blue I don't whale know. comedy. My response to that is... It, on purpose. I didn't want it to be what you expected, but some people want what they expect, and and so I think we need better, better labels. Like if you say I'm going to a music concert, that's a very different experience from one kind of music to another. Mm. And I think there is that breadth in comedy now, and more and more becoming that breadth. So we need a better vocab for describing what you're going to experience. I guess you could kind of say, like, you know, some comedians might be playing, playing the So Fresh hits of summer. Yes. In 94 or whatever. And you might be making, like, a, a kind of actual feelings-filled uh, teenage mixtape. Yes. So it's kind of exactly very that. different experiences. And I am an absolute hypocrite because when I want to go watch a movie, it's a dumb blockbuster. I don't necessarily want to go see an art film. But I do think that you should know maybe 
you, when you walk into a show that it's going to be an art film or a, a blockbuster or, or something else, uh, something completely new, or just take off your expectations when you walk in the door if you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah, so I think maybe there's like the star system for saying how good something was, maybe the star system for saying how many curveballs might be thrown. Yeah, like, throughout. you know, chilli peppers on menus where they say it's mild, <laughs> medium or hot, that yeah, kind of very thing. Very spicy comedy. Very spicy comedy. <laughs> Yeah, like language warnings before songs. All of those things are just giving people a little bit of a heads up. I mean, I try to do that in the first five minutes of my show and I do give people the option to leave. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that you have to do that. So we're going to take some uh, some fairly uh, spicy comedy in a second. So Sammy J and Randy's Difficult First Album. Now, tell me a little bit about why you wanted to pick this song. There's this thing that happened in the early... Years, I guess. Gosh, I've been doing this for a little while. In the early sort of months and years of my comedy, where people would say, "Oh, you don't, you shouldn't do this, or you shouldn't do that. That's silly, or that people won't take you seriously. If you do music, it's a gimmick, and and you shouldn't, you know, you or you want to be doing this kind of serious political comedy, so you shouldn't be playing with like dumb fun stuff as well. It'll confuse people, or you kind of get your message clear, and you're it's, you're already enough of a novelty as a woman on stage. You don't need to have because <laughs> oh, I have really? my banjo and my piano and my little piano. And, and I like those kind of I was brought up with Monty Python and, and, and these dumb Gilbert and Sullivan fun musical songs which I really enjoyed but I started to think oh well they are silly and they are old fashioned and, and then I spice. watched Sammy J and Randy and I listened to their album and I was like oh yeah I really like that I really like things that are like smart and dumb at the same time that they're fun and silly and, and clever and, and, and like delicious fairy floss. I, and, and that's why I wanted to play this song, because it makes me happy. Here we go. Alice Fraser and Out of the Box today. It was a Monday when we took the car and drove it to the shops. I think it was a Tuesday. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. No, you're right, it was a Tuesday. Because Derek had the permit. It's a clear way on a Monday. Yeah, but we parked there, so it must have been a Tuesday when we took the Did car. Did Derek give that permit back? He said he'd leave it when he went to Queensland. We should chase that up. We will. Still, we were in the car, <sighs> driving to the shops. I'm serious, that permit wasn't cheap. Relax, we'll get the permit back. That's what you said about the vacuum cleaner. Well, that was different. He's got Alan what, what? I saw the rat. It's eczema. He has to clean the carpet because his cat's got hairy bollocks. He should get that thing dissected. He can't. He breeds them. It's his way of coping with a difficult divorce. As far as I can see, his only allergy is giving back the shit he borrows from his neighbours. So we were driving north. I mean, the guy can still afford to go to Noosa. Yeah, what's your point? He should just buy a vacuum cleaner. Look, I lent it in good faith. How was I to know he'd take it into state and give it to his niece for her first communion? I didn't know he had a it's complicated, see his sister had a friend that died She's barren, so she felt obliged to care So for it's her. not actually his niece Well, not by blood That's even worse, I can't believe he gave our vacuum cleaner to a random stranger So we were driving north South South towards the North Though it was northern suburbs South That's right, the, the map was upside down But we got, got there, there in the end Parked outside the fish and chip shop For a chop milk bar hardware Bank no haberdashery It's next door to the house and home shop We went in and bought a vacuum cleaner When, when we came outside, we had a parking fine Cause Derek had the purse. He said he'd give it back He didn't Evidently I won't be paying I'm trying that. to sell a fucking story Well tell it then I will Good. I'm telling it I'm right tell now it Yes I'm trying well, to we were driving home after the shops But when we pulled into the driveway Felt a bump, got out And realised we'd run over Derek's cat Who was being held by Derek at the time We took the permit from his cold dead hands And ran away, good times 
<laughs> See what I mean? It's completely ridiculous. Yes, that's exact. And I love it. I loved it. And I thought, ah, yeah. And so I started using my banjo more again and I started using my tiny piano more again and then I realised that I can, I can use that as one of my toolkits. People are much more willing to listen to, like me talk about death and suffering if I've made them a bit happy with the song first. (laughs) (laughs) It's a soothing balm for the burn you're about to give them. Yeah. I see. So do you you still use music in the current show that you've got going, The Resistance? Yeah, I do. I had it, I stripped back for last year's show because it was sadder than this one, but this, there's, uh, I think, four, five songs in this show, uh, depending on one thing that I'm not going to tell you about. (laughs) Four or five songs. Well... Let's let's talk a little bit about your new show then, The Resistance. So had a really good run at Melbourne Comedy Festival. We've got four nights in Sydney. You're at the Enmore Theatre in a, in a fairly big spot. In the wine bar downstairs. The, Delightful. It's, it's very lovely comedy space, but it's also quite big, which is good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's big. Tickets are selling well, which is a relief. Yes. Melbourne was a really good run and I would like not to have like a massive anticlimax after that. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I want to know a bit, bit about the origins of the resistance. So what does the resistance in particular kind of refer to? Or would that be, would that be ruining a surprise? surprise? This is the thing you can't the talk about comedy, especially spicy comedy. Specifically, well, I don't think it's spoiled by talking about what the show's about, which is the house that I grew up in and the, the people that I grew up around. My granny was a really uh, wild, sort of generous, one of those really kind, considerate bigots uh, <laughs> who would say the most horrible things about every kind of race and creed but was so generous and kind in person to people. And, and she owned this property and would just let people come and live there. And those were the people I grew up with and, and having them around, these really, you know, people with mental illness or people who had these amazing, horrible backstories. And you just accept that as a kid. You accept that that's what people are like. Yeah. It's not until you grow up that you realise that not everyone has the manic, depressive Chilean gardener with seven and a half fingers living upstairs. You, you just assume that's what everyone has until you come out into the world. And, and then it's about my finding out more about those people as an older person myself, finding more about the history of, of them and of my granny and and how that changes your idea of the world and what it is to be a person in the world and what it is to be a good person in the world. So where is your grandma from then? She was a Hungarian Jewish lady, Holocaust survivor. Mm-hmm. So she was the only person in her family, to, in her immediate family to survive. Her half-brother also survived, but her whole family was killed. And so she sort of came out to Australia and and made this life for herself afterwards. and Completely and alone. Completely alone and, and, and yeah, made a life, built a life and then started being generous to other people or was always generous to other people and kind to other people in the face of the knowledge of how horrible people can be, how full of hate and, and violence people are capable of being and she was just unfailingly generous. But you also said that she was bigoted. So oh, how, how did that work? She just whatever the hell came to her head. Like just whatever. She, you just can't trust the Greeks. Whatever. She'd just say <laughs> anything in her head. Like just... But in reality, you know, she'd she'd stop on the street and help a stray dog, or she'd she'd stop and she'd she'd get. I remember her breaking up a fight between this massive guy and his girlfriend, charging in this six. She must have been sixty something. She was a grandmother at that time because I was there, uh, charging in between this man and his girlfriend. He was shouting, and she shouted in his face to pick on somebody your own size, and and he just looked terrified and she just swore at him in a mixture of Hungarian and English until he sort of backed off and (laughs) she was like that she just was not afraid to stand up for people and there's people now who are so certain that they are good people who wouldn't interfere who wouldn't step in who wouldn't 
who would think about it or worry about it or wonder if they should and she just charged in like a yeah just she just had that heart on her practical goodness rather than theoretical goodness yeah which i think theoretical goodness. goodness is very easy to maintain it's very easy it's just about not saying the wrong thing yeah and you, you can do it on Facebook. You can, you do, can it do it. You can seem like a real upstanding what... citizen, but then you know someone's beating their girlfriend and you don't step in, for example, and you just don't think that it's your place to say anything because it seems or, uncomfortable. Yeah, you walk past, a, you walk past a, a woman crying in the street or a homeless man who's fallen over in a gutter and you think, oh, that's not my problem. Yeah, but your granny would have stopped. Every time. Every time. So what was she like as an actual grandmother? I mean, she seems to be quite generous to everyone around her and needs help. But what about what about as a grandchild? Uh, you know, you'd, you'd go down to her house and, and she'd slam a lasagna down on the table and you'd say, oh, thank you. That is for you. This one is for Henry. And she put another whole lasagna. <laughs> she was like that. That was what she was like. And Henry's friends, you know, teenage boys, as my twin brother Henry, uh, they'd come over and just be fed to the gills with all these amazing, you know, when she was the one designated to bring food for cricket matches she, you know everyone else would bring quartered oranges and she'd be bringing deviled eggs and sausages <laughs> and just the whole thing she was just overflowing with generosity she loved giving people presents she loved christmas more than anything my jewish but granny she's jewish who knew nothing about christmas except that it was an opportunity to give people presents and that was that was her would she really get into get into the proper she, spirit of it she dressed as santa i thought santa was a woman <laughs> I genuinely did. I thought Santa was a woman with a Hungarian accent and a beard. It made sense. Hungarian, Hungarians just... are cold climate people. I thought Santa must have a similar accent. I want to know what Hungarian Santa sounds like. You are so beautiful. I have brought you presents. Like that. <laughs> Wonderful. Very nice. You mentioned you have a twin brother and he's actually he's quite a musical character from what I hear. He is. He's a musician. Uh, he's a... A very good musician. He's in the UK these days doing his PhD at Oxford. Ham, very proud of him. Uh, but uh, he's always been a musical type. He works really hard at, at music and it's his comedy, I guess. We've got a song from him, actually, called Shades of Grey. Yes. Now, what's the, what's the reason you'd want to bring this song on? I wanted to bring this song on because it's sort of a... Because of... He's my twin brother. He's a. This is a song that's like a distillation or a filtration of all of the songs we listened to as kids. You know, the James Taylor that mum and dad would play in the car, and all of those influences. I hear them when in this song. I hear this kind of the influence coming through on that, and then also because it's a song about complexity and and about difficulty and about love that isn't the kind of love that you think you're meant to have. Beautiful. Alice Fraser and Out of the Box today. Here we go. It's something from her twin brother, Henry Fraser. Shades of Grey. I can't think of a wrong that you've done me That I did not bring upon in some way and all of the times that you treated me badly were painted in the shades of grey there we were sitting at a wedding while Packer Bell's cannon was playing we'd been fighting such a sad song for a celebration Both of us thought that we were right 
shades of gray Shadows are cast on tomorrow from yesterday Space between what you hear what I say Painted in the shade Answers for me That's your way But I believe Love can be silent And sometimes There's nothing to say Shades of grey Shadows are cast On tomorrow Shouldn't be looking at the tree that cast it. The shadow is shimmering before me now, but the roots reach right back to the past. And I said that I am persuaded there's only one way to do this thing right. Why would it be black and white? Shades of gray Shadows are cast on tomorrow from yesterday The space between what you hear and what I say Is painted in the shade Shadows are cast on tomorrow from yesterday. The space between what you hear, what I say, is painted in the shades of Out of the box. Subscribe to the podcast at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Billy Ray was a preacher's son, and when his daddy would visit, he'd come alone. When they gather around and started talking, that's when Billy would take me walking. Out through the backyard, we go walking. Then he look into my eyes. Lord knows to my surprise, the only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. See what he was.
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5. Alice Fraser is my guest today, Son of a Preacher Man by Dusty Springfield right there. And before that, you heard from Henry Fraser, which is uh, the, the twin of twin my of guest. Twin of me. Out of the Box today. Are you, guys, are you guys somewhat identical? No, no, no. He's much taller and better looking than I am. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm the funny one. So, so who really won? Who him? really yeah. won? I definitely am. <laughs> so, uh, so you grew up with uh, mum and dad. And a twin brother. Yes. And that song. Why do you want to pick that song by Dusty Springfield? A preacher man. Oh, my da- my dad is uh, part of a, a long tradition of uh, Jewish people who became Buddhists, uh, as he calls them, the Om Shalom Brigade. <laughs> it's a difficult. I think it's a. I mean, as the son of a Holocaust survivor, I think it's difficult to believe in a god, uh, particularly a god that's omnipresent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. You don't have any relatives. It's quite hard to believe in a god that's good. And has power in what the world. What about your grandmother, though? I Did think she, she maintained Jewish tradition um, as a as a bit of a <laughs> a bit of an fu to Hitler. Uh, I I think she felt it would be a betrayal not to. I don't know whether she believed in God or not. She was relatively superstitious, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know if that was just an old lady thing, or because she thought it was fun to <laughs> to keep up traditions and and so on and so forth. But my dad definitely didn't. He he was a philosophy lecturer first and sort of interested in that kind of thing. And then from there, I mean, it was the 70s slash 80s, <laughs> yeah. got interested in the Eastern philosophies. And then he did a meditation course with a particular teacher and found it really suited him. And that was his idea of what the truth was. And he was going out with my mum at that time and she'd just been diagnosed with MS. Mm-hmm. And she found that meditating helped her and the kind of the Buddhist philosophy helped her deal with that <laughs> being confronted with your own mortality and your own kind of degeneration. Yeah, because you've got Buddhism ideas of impermanence and egolessness, yeah, I guess, if you kind of, if you're falling apart a bit. Yeah, you, you, helps you, you know come your to death terms. in your mind. Yeah. It helps you come to terms with it. So I, by the time my brother and I were born, that was what our family was. That's, that was our, our practice. Um, so I was I was born into it, and my twin was born into into that. So I'm a weird a weird mix of Catholic, Jewish, and and Buddhist. <laughs> so with hindsight, how do you reckon you viewed the world differently, being raised Buddhist? Uh, I I don't I don't know. You don't know how you're different you can't from see other it people because you can't. Yeah. Other than not really uh, knowing the real. Santa enough to question my granny's version of Santa. <laughs> um, I I don't know. I think maybe being a little bit more relaxed about things. I can't. You can't really say what how you would be different had you not been brought up with a particular set of beliefs. I found um, certainly when I encountered kind of Christian. Uh, iconography for the first time as a kid, I found it super confronting. How old do you think you were when you finally came across it? I think art art galleries, but then when I first came across it as an idea, probably eight or nine, when you go to and you suddenly realise that this is all part of a piece and this 
it's very graphic. It's really brutal and well, like quite the cross and stuff. The, like a man on a cross and a lot of bleeding people and people with eyes on plates and like thorns and lashings and people being speared with things. All this kind of a focus on martyrdom and pain as an expression of faith was very alien to me in a way that I don't think it is for people who get brought up more strongly in the Judeo-Christian tradition. That seems obvious that suffering and pain are not just inevitable as a as a principle of Buddhism, but sort of desirable in a way, or can be an articulation of of a of transcendence or something religious. So it's it's virtuous in the same way that you probably being raised Buddhist wouldn't have grown up with any real ideas about faith, having faith in something that isn't there and that it's going to be kind of okay. No, I, Buddhism is very counter faith based. It's not. It's believing in something has nothing to do with Buddhist practice. Yes, and worshipping If you believe somebody, then you're less likely to do the work yourself to try and figure it out. Mm. It's about it's about seeing truth or understanding truth. And and you can't do that if you're blinded by that feeling of faith, which is very much an emotional state, I think. Faith is not an intellectual position. It's not an experiential thing either. It's just a it's a it's like love. Yeah, it's, it's something that, you know, for example, with love, we're like, I don't even understand it still. Like, as much as a scientist say it's for this, I still don't understand it. Yeah. Same with faith, it's kind of like, you don't have to understand it. You just kind of go with it. And it's a it. pleasurable feeling. And don't get me mm. wrong, faith is a really nice feeling. It's a it's a physical pleasure to to abdicate responsibility for your everything. Yeah. Um and put it in the hands of a higher power or the universe or somebody else take my problems away. <laughs> uh, in the same way, I can I can see the appeal. Let's just say I can see the appeal of, of women who want to be trophy wives. You know, you, you're a forever baby. You don't have to ever worry about looking after yourself. Or if you do, it's sort of for fun because you know someone else has got got a handle on things. Yeah, and it also means people can tell you stories and you take them, whereas with Buddhism it sounds like you've got to really observe everything for yourself and you've got to kind of navigate the world through the framework of your own body and that's hard work and you never really know if you're 100% right you have to make your own truth it's like when people say oh did your father convert to Buddhism it's not it's that's not how it works you're you're not a Buddhist in the absence of practice you don't just are a Buddhist (laughs) you practice you practice whereas you know you can be a non-observing Jewish person or a non-observing Christian person and just sort of think of yourself in some sort of probiotic wellness way as being (laughs) constitutionally Catholic or constitutionally uh, or culturally. Like you inherit that. Yeah, it's it's a, so that I think is the framework that I was brought up on. It's really, yeah, it's really strange to think that you get to the age of 10 and you have to actually confront Christianity though because by, by that point everyone's kind of got that um, Sunday school level of understanding in Australia. Did you did you find that you were kind of left out of anything growing up by by really not having that background? Uh, the Jewish Narnia fiction? books. Um, <laughs> I loved the Narnia books. I, they were sort of the first chapter books I read, and I read them relatively young. And it wasn't until I was a little bit older and I realised that it was all a trick and that, sorry, spoiler alert, for anyone who hasn't read the Narnia books, uh, the next 15 seconds you should probably block your ears, that uh, the lion Aslan is a representative of of Jesus Christ in in the books. I thought, I suddenly thought, oh, if I were Christian, this pull back and reveal would feel 
amazing. <laughs> you know, like it would be the best. It would yeah. be like, oh, wait, oh, wow, it was all along. It was this thing that I, you know, is the right thing. And I it wasn't just a fun book. It was like a, a good thing. And I did a moral good by reading these books. And for me, it felt a little bit like, oh, that's a bit of a trick. That's a mean trick. <laughs> Uh, because I didn't... Poor little Alice. <laughs> well, I, I did. I felt a little bit left out of that because yeah. I could see if you really did believe in that story or the parallel story of the, the Bible running alongside the Narnia books would be fabulous. How good would that be? Fulfilling, yeah. You know, it's it's the, the man at the bus stop pulling off his mask and he was your dad all along or, or whatever it was. <laughs> so we're going to have a song by Mary Black in a moment. And oh, strap in. So this is an emotional time, I understand. Yes, this this uh, song is a very emotional song for me. Uh, it was one that mum used to play. She loved Irish folk music. She, that was her kind of... She was in a band before she got sick and she loved Irish and Australian folk music particularly, Mary Black being an extremely good uh, singer and, and folk musician. And this is a song... Well, I'll let you listen to it, but uh, I find it... It moves me every time I listen to it. Uh, so I guess about the power of art. Yeah, it's a, and it's not background music. I think you've got to kind of follow a story. So it's Mary Black with My Youngest Son Came Home Today.
Goosebumps. Yeah, straight up. Look at mine as well. I think yeah. it's, it's not a competition, but my goosebumps are much worse than yours <laughs> no, right I've now. I've heard the song before. Yeah, you, you were prepared for that. I'm prepared <laughs> for it. So very heavy song. Um, it really talks about the troubles in Ireland. We had A.H. Cayley on a couple of weeks ago and, and her family is Irish, her mother's Irish, and she talked a bit about the troubles as well and really illuminated for me how incredibly serious it was, and that's a very serious song. But it cuts right through, doesn't it? Yeah, mm. it does. I think we are lacking a little bit in our culture of, of a recognition of these kind of. We're very we're very willing nowadays to sort of lump all white people in under one banner, and you forget that in the sixties, in the census, Irish and Italian were both considered non-white groups. That's so strange. Yeah, they were considered completely different phenotypes. They were considered completely different, you know, species of of human. In the same way as as uh, other people of colour, and, and so it's now we've sort of come to this uh, sense, which in, in some ways is nice, of evening out all the whites into one sort of big bucket. But you forget that, I mean, in Australia, a huge number of the convicts were also Irish and treated as subhumans by other quote unquote other white people who didn't think they were people yeah, or Irish, as much people as Irish slavery was huge, huge. In one way, it's a lot better because we don't have that. Um, we don't have the the history of white supremacy to fight against as people who have the traditions of Irish or Italian or other origin stories that are now grouped in under the, the banner of, of white privilege. You don't. You can take that banner on and, and have all the privileges of being a white person, but that doesn't erase that history either. Mm. You. It's. It's easier in a lot of ways because you can pass or you you mingle or you can completely sub subsume your ethnic identity within this larger sort of broader basket of white privilege and you're not faced with that whole history uh, an emphasis that is still in many people's minds particularly in you know America of of, of white supremacy that that other races are of different have different characteristics and different qualities that you don't fight that in the same way, but that again, it's relatively recent history mm. that that Irish people or Italian people were treated as subhuman. And you didn't just bring that song on to talk about race <laughs> and yeah. white power. And how far <laughs> how far we've come so quickly is a nice way of looking at it. Yes, it really is nice. A hundred years ago, women couldn't vote. That's nice. That's yeah. That's nice. On. And. Um, but you did bring that song on because it was it was one of your mother's favorite songs. Did you say it was? Yeah, she would play it a lot in the car. Or, yeah, she really liked it. So she a singer or played? She an was instrument? a musician. She played the banjo. The banjo that I play is the banjo that she played. She was a lot better than I am <laughs> uh, in terms of her music, musicianship, there. and she was fascinated by 
by folk culture and and the stories that got told through songs, particularly in Irish history when the Irish people didn't have access to mainstream sources of information sharing, things like ballads and stuff became news ways of telling news. You know, they, all the bushranger ballads, if you look at them, are really specific on dates and names and times and places. When you say bushranger ballads, what kind of songs are you talking there's about? A, there's a tradition in, in Australian music and also in Irish, but, but mainly in Australian, we have these ballads that are about bushrangers. So you have the ballad of Ben Hall, uh, who was hunted from his station and like a dog shot down. Great line. And then you had these these different stories of these people who existed, bushrangers often who'd been wronged, usually in the narrative. They're not just criminals, they're criminals for a reason. And that tells the story of, of what they did and who they did it with and when they were captured or caught or how they were killed. But with very, like really specific on dates and times and places because the newspaper might not report it or it might not report it accurately. <laughs> So a community could actually know about it. You could pass These that on. These songs would get passed around, yeah. yeah. And so your your mum sounds like a really creative person. She was, yes. Yes. So she had MS as well, and I guess, you know, it's a degenerative disease. So in what kind of things does that end up doing to you as a person? Oh, I mean, MS is a, is a crapshoot. You don't know um, when you are diagnosed with MS what's going to go and in what order and how fast. There's some people who die very quickly and some people who they lose their vision first. For my mum, uh, it started with balance. She lost her balance and then over time she lost other things, a feeling in her hands. Um, well, feeling in her hands. She noticed she couldn't play her instruments as well. Okay. And so then that tipped her off that something was wrong. So she started wobbling and then she couldn't play music and then she started getting it checked out? Uh, Well, she got it checked out when she couldn't feel her fingers on the strings properly and then then she lost balance and then she lost various other things. Um, And she had it for 33 years, so in some ways she did very well to have lived so long with such a a disease. But in other ways, she lost a lot of the things that she thought were important, like her ability to play her instruments, like her desire to be creative, all of those things, memory and and, and impulse control and uh, the initiation function, the desire to, or the capacity to go from des- the desire to do something to actually doing it. What do you mean? Like what's an example of something that uh, you lose in that? So in really bad times, she, you could put a cup of coffee in front of her and you could see that she wanted to drink it but just couldn't figure out how to get from there to to drinking it. Can't in the get same going. way wow. it's in the same yeah. way as you think, oh I'd love a job in T V. You just never do you anything. Just go, Whoa. Yeah. Yep, love that. But on a really small scale. And then, I mean it started probably in our teens and you don't know that. It's sort of just an annoying thing that mum says, Oh, I'll go get milk and then she doesn't get milk. It starts like that and it goes further and further and further until you realise that it's not a personal characteristic, it's a symptom of the disease and that's where I think MS and particularly neurodegenerative diseases are nasty because they don't it's not easy to tell with behaviors and people and ways of thinking anger or the those loops in your head that you have or the 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 electrical impulses that you have that you think are yourself your ability to get things done as a person a lot of people define that as as an inherent characteristic of their personality they're Mm. a kind of person who gets things done but if that loop in your brain is gone you can't get things done so it is things impossible. that are essentially you when you think about how, you know, you might eulogise someone as being essentially like this. Like I might ask you how your mum was typically 
but then that would have a picture of that would have changed yeah, from I the mean, age of zero to when she died. So yeah, so she was diagnosed at twenty six, and she died at fifty eight. So before you were born. Yes, so she was diagnosed before I was born. Did um, you ever wonder why your mum wanted to have kids when she knew that she had a degenerative disease that she wouldn't really know the the course of? It was a, a decision that she and my dad made. Um, they say I, you only get this news secondhand hearsay to the court, um, but uh, they wanted to have kids partly because they didn't know how long she would live. She could have died very quickly, and they didn't know what to expect. They decided that they wanted to have children and. Uh, also, it's pr- protective uh, in some cases in MS, having that, um, I think, progesterone slows the course of the disease. So uh, it was re- recommended by a doctor as well. So pregnancy is recommended as a sort of like slowing down? Slowing down mechanism. And also the doctor said if you can do it now because you don't know how much harder it's going to get uh, True. to do it. While, and and sh- she was very good as a mother, like a very active and, and caring mother until, until we were about 10. She had a lot of energy. She had to have more naps and didn't like loud noises. And that was really all we noticed as a as children. And then uh, at 10, did you have a kind of chat? She had a, an attack and mm. dad sat us down and said, yeah, we, mom's looked after you very well until now. Now we have to do some looking after. At 10, you think, okay, Sounds double good. digits, I'm a grown-up. <laughs> you do. You, that's do. how you think as a kid. You, um, and in some ways, you are. In some ways, it's easier to be responsible at that age. It's easier to be good at that age because life is not complicated. You're not hormonal as well. You're you know? not hormonal. <laughs> you don't have other desires. You, you know, your life is your family, and so you can look after your family in a, a clean and 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 happy way without you know maybe if it had come later down the line I might have resented it or felt like it was taking something away from me it really wasn't we mm. we just slightly rearranged the way we did things and and as and, a family it worked and for you you would have looked at your twin brother and been like yeah well you know we're all we're all in this together like it wasn't wasn't a lone venture no it wasn't it was very much and we didn't fight as a family it was a a shared enemy I I think I don't know whether we would have been rebellious teens or not but we definitely weren't you know left to our own devices I don't think we necessarily would have been Uh, but I think uh, it was never really an option yeah yeah and do you you remember there being a kind of point where you got to because you would have been a teenager at the time as well a point that you got to when you were like going through high school where you were like, that's not my mum anymore? Like, does it get like that? No, it doesn't. Never? Never, weirdly. Why do you reckon that is? I don't know. Delusion, human delusion, I don't uh, love. Maybe there is some element of personality that is distinct from all of the characteristics that you associate with personality. Maybe it's just that it happened gradually and so you adjust in the same way as a child growing up doesn't strike you if you're living with the child. Uh, someone sort of having pieces taken away bit by bit doesn't strike you. Mm. And so you just adjust, whereas you might not recognise a kid if you saw them at three and then if you saw them at 23, you might not be like, oh, yeah, Stanley. Uh, yeah, it's gradual. It's it. You would only know them by someone's telling you, that, oh, that's Stanley who you knew when you were three. Uh, but you, with, I think with somebody who's in your family, um, it's different. If you see it happen, you adjust. Mm. 
you were raised in kind of, you know, your parents were Buddhist. They meditated. They got you meditating at camps and stuff like that. You know, you mm. kind of... Camps had, makes it sound... Camp, I know, right? It just, it just sounds so like Jesus camp. I don't know what word to use for it. Um, centre. Centre. Meditation centre. I don't yeah, know. exactly. But yeah, so I was wondering, did you feel like you're... This is maybe a weird question, but do you feel like having a Buddhist upbringing helps you better deal with death? Because they've got kind of ideas of impermanence in there and, I mean, you... Is yes, it different to... I think it helped me. I think yeah. it helped us as a family. I think that it's very difficult, as I said before, to tell which, which bits of my personal idea of the world and my reaction to things are shaped by that practice and that upbringing. I think, I think a lot, but how can you tell how you would be different if you didn't have a particular philosophy as a sort of a fundamental idea of how the world works? So I... I I've seen people who who have of all religions react to death well and or badly, so I think it's probably a mix. Uh, I'd like to. I think I like to think that the thing that was most important for us with Mum's death was at, that we dealt with it as a family, and she was really, really calm and patient, and and, you know, it was a horrible it was a horrible way to die, MS and then cancer. It's a really unpleasant and painful thing to do and she never worried about it she just sort of dealt with what came as it came really equanimously to bring it back to a buddhist (laughs) virtue with equanimity she remained equanimous could have been a lot harder than it was Mm. we're going to play a song by dappled cities called born on the right time we'll come back in, in just a second to talk again to alice fraser and out of the box today i 
It was an FBI 94.5 Out of the Box is a program on the air today and I've had Alice Fraser with me for the past hour. Thanks so much for having me. I'm sorry it got a little bit uh, sad. <laughs> well, I, I kind of... my comedy is funnier than that. <laughs> no, your comedy is, uh, is great. And um, you've made me laugh very, very hard in the past at um, Mr. Falcons. I remember laughing so hard that I was just like, what, what is happening to my body? It really hurt. Um, so you've got shows tonight, tomorrow night, the night after, and then the night after, all at the Enmore Theatre. Tonight till Sunday. Yeah, tickets are all under and around $25 for that. So, yeah, four dates up until Sunday, and it's, it's called The Resistance. Run, so you probably should jump on it if you're interested in seeing Alice Fraser. She sold out a lot of, or all of pretty much, the Melbourne Comedy Festival, which is why I haven't been able to see it yet. Um, <laughs> so I'll be there on Sunday. Oh, brilliant. Excited to see you. Yay, looking forward to it. So we've got time for one last song. But before we do whack it on, um, I was going to ask you, with the Dappled Cities track that we just played, Born at the Right Time, now why did you want to play that one? Uh, because we are. I mean, any almost any other time in history, it would have been a lot harder to be, you know, a woman or of of, of a, a mixed background or of all of these things to have access to the things that we have now. It's astonishing, a the privilege that we have that we're blind to, not just from within today's society, within the framework of today's society, but just as a society. Even the poorest people now have access to things that kings wouldn't have had access to. Yeah, you can change your station in a way that never has been able to be done before. Not having to worry about about bandits on the roads, things like that. <laughs> we or darning so your clothes. We are, we are so lucky and I feel pleased to to have lucked out and be born into this time where we have so many things. Wondrous. And now we've got time for one last track this hour. It's Mind Reader by Suburban Dark. And I wanted to ask you quickly why you wanted to play that track. But first, just remember, if you wanted to go see Alice Fraser in The Resistance, you can buy tickets through Ticketek. It's at the Enmore Theatre. And it's tonight, tomorrow night, the next night, and the night after that, all the way till Sunday. Uh, this is the song that I sing to myself in my head sometimes when <laughs> sometimes you get these audiences and you're just not quite sure what they're thinking. This is called Mind Reader, Suburban Dark. Thanks so much, Alice. Thank you. Sunday, fuck work on the Monday, it's time that I quit I'm trying to get dips for the pretty fly diva Duddy wine by the speaker, so I rise up to meet her Yo, we high off the ether She said, what's my name, bitch? A smile in the face, said I ain't a mind reader How am I supposed to know what's on your mind If you don't tell me How am I supposed to know what's up inside If you don't tell me How am I supposed to know just how you feel If you don't tell me How am I supposed to know what's really real Tell me, how am I supposed to know what's up in your mind when I don't know what the hell 
is going on? How am I supposed to know what's on your mind if you don't I tell fucking me? Mind, How am I supposed to know what's up inside if you don't I tell fucking me? Mind, How am I supposed to know just how you feel if you don't I tell fucking me? How am I supposed to know what's real and real if you don't I tell fucking me?